You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 84. Greetings, Metamorphs, and Happy New Year. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. I've had two lovely weeks to rest and prepare, and now I'm ready to resume bringing you weekly installments of my fresh new fiction. So let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you part four of my Metamore City novella, Divide by Zero. If you're new to the show, you'll want to go back to episode 81 to hear this story from the beginning. Once you're caught up, follow me onward to this week's story recap. Before I begin the recap, though, a brief reminder. I told you at the beginning of this story that it was written for the web, and it deliberately takes advantage of pre-formatted text in order to present some content in a non-linear way. Because audio is an inherently linear form, what you will hear in the next two chapters is an artistic interpretation of the text. I recommend listening to these two parts with stereo headphones, because I'll be making use of the two-dimensional sound space to try to recreate some of the effect of reading the story in print. If you want to read the text of this story, you can find it in the second Metamore City story collection, Divine Intervention, which is on sale now. I strongly recommend reading the print version of the book, if you can, because ebook readers are often inconsistent in how they handle pre-formatted text. You can find the print edition at Amazon.com, and the link will be in the show notes. Now, let's get to the recap. Hallie Carmenos, a brilliant young theoretical physicist, is suffering from a crisis of faith. She has built not only her career, but her entire sense of self on the belief that the world is rational, explicable, and deterministic. She used her mastery of higher mathematics to develop a theoretical model for the space-time-ether matrix, which predicts how the realm of magic interacts with the realm of normal space and time. This model sent shockwaves through the University of Pyralis, because it seemed to show that prophecy, seeing visions of the future, is impossible. Given her own disdain for the superstitions of priests and prophets, finding this prediction in her own model vindicated her ideas of a world built on reason and order. But now Hallie has been shown that there is a flaw in her model. It doesn't predict the behavior of all magical fields as well as she thought it did. The man who showed her this flaw, an enigmatic and eccentric scholar who calls himself Septimus, agreed to help her identify the source of the flaw and correct it. Once he takes a look at the theoretical underpinnings of her model, though, he has disturbing news for her. It's not just her model that's flawed, but her entire worldview. The most basic assumptions that guided the creation of her model are themselves incorrect, or at least incomplete. Septimus tells Hallie that before he can help her, she must first learn how to see— he places his fingers on her eyelids, sending a jolt of some unseen energy coursing through her body. Immediately, all of Hallie's senses are heightened. Septimus tells her that he has planted a seed within her, but whether that seed grows or withers is up to her. If she chooses to accept it, then Septimus's gift will shatter her illusions about the world and make it impossible for her to see it as she does now. When she decides whether she is willing to pay that price, he will see her again. Lying awake in bed that night, 
Hallie can sense Septimus's gift inside her, a space that is closed off inside her mind, but which she has the power to unlock if she chooses to do so. At first, she hesitates, because she doesn't know what the gift will do to her. She isn't sure she can handle discovering that her entire worldview is built on a lie. Eventually, though, she decides that she has to know, one way or another. If she has the opportunity to know the truth and she chooses to walk away from it, that is intellectual cowardice, and she is not a coward. Slowly, tentatively, she reaches inside her own mind and opens Septimus's gift. Divide by Zero A Tale of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Part 4 Thursday, June 17th Morning again! I practically leap out of bed, my arms and legs tingling with life. I feel sunshine dancing across my skin, hear birds singing in the trees outside, feel the carpeting squish between my toes. The world is alive, and I feel like singing. So I do. I strip off my clothes, wrap my towel around me, and head for the shower with a spring in my step. The warm water runs over my skin like a lover's hands, sensual and comforting. The lather of soap tingles everywhere it touches, then washes away and leaves me feeling like a woman reborn. I dry off, comb out my hair, and open the door when a heavenly scent fills my nose. Coffee! Grinning, I practically dance my way out to the kitchen and pull out a mug. I pass Sophie on the way, as she stands in front of the stove tending a skillet of scrambled eggs, dressed in her kimono and with her hair wrapped up in a towel. I pay her little heed as I grab the pot and pour out the blessed black beverage, then raise the cup to my nose and breathe. I follow that up with a slurp, then savor the rich, nutty flavor of it as it runs over my tongue and down my throat. Sweet maker, I say, the words coming out like a prayer. You surely know how to make a cup of coffee, Soph. Sophie doesn't say anything in response, though she does make a noise, sort of a cute little squeak. I smile. Now, Sophie, I chide her, turning slowly around. When someone pays you a compliment, you say, Holy daughter of God, Sophie whispers. I turn around and see that she's staring at me, eyes wide. I cock my head and laugh at her expression. No, I... She's still staring. Huh. That's kind of silly of her. What's up, Sophie? Her eyes go down the length of my body, then back up to my face. I follow her gaze down. Oh, I see. Looks like I left my towel in the bathroom. I take a moment to decide whether I'm embarrassed about that. Huh. Apparently not. But then, why should I be? I look back up at Sophie. She's still staring, and now her lower lip is quivering a little. I can hear her heart beating faster, her breathing getting deeper. I raise my eyebrows at her. What, this? I say, gesturing down at my nude body. What's the problem? You've made a career out of enjoying the human body for the good of science. 
I take a sip of my coffee and then look back at her, grinning wickedly over the edge of the cup. You are enjoying it, aren't you? Sophie makes a little whimpering noise and drops her spatula. I laugh and take my cup of coffee with me as I go back to my room to get dressed. Which really isn't as much fun as walking around naked. (sighs) Boring, 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 all boring. My closet looks like it was stocked by an accountant. All dark blue or black or gray or white or brown. Even the yellow cami I wore yesterday looks washed out. (laughs) Even my underwear is boring. I really need to get some new clothes, I say, pouting. Just then, the doorbell rings. I'll get it, Sophie shouts. She sounds a little too eager. (laughs) Maybe she's afraid I'm going to answer the door naked. That could be funny. The door opens, then shuts a few seconds later. I hear Sophie padding over to my door in her bare feet, the slap of flesh against tile, followed by the squish, squish, squish of the carpet. She knocks, hesitantly. Um, Hallie? You've got a package. A package for me? I didn't order anything. Hey, a surprise! I go over and yank open the door. Sophie's standing there, fidgeting, staring off to her left, holding a huge cardboard box out straight in front of her. Her pale, freckled skin is blushing everywhere I can see it. She's just too adorable. I take the package and set it inside. Thanks, I say, then lean forward and plant a kiss on the cheek she has turned toward me. Her blush changes to a color more like a boiled lobster as I turn my back and carry the box back to my bed. I don't bother shutting the door again. If she decides to watch, why would I stop her? I tear open the box and pull aside the packaging to find... Oh, yes! Colors! Brilliant, vibrant colors spilling out everywhere. Luscious hues of red and pink and orange and purple and green and yellow. Halters, camisoles, bikinis, short shorts, mini skirts, sarongs, silk blouses as sheer as pantyhose, sexy lingerie in a dozen varieties, and an assortment of hats, scarves, even a few colorful pairs of sandals and shoes. I drink in the sight of it grab handfuls of fabric and rub it over my skin, and love every bit of it. I look at the packing receipt and laugh out loud. There's a message printed there. Hallie, I thought you might have need of these. If so, consider them a gift. If not, return them, and I will pay all expenses. I look forward to our next meeting. Septimus. Clever, clever man, I say fondly letting the receipt fall to the floor. It's perfect. Absolutely perfect. Holy shit! I look back over my shoulder and see that curiosity has gotten the better of Sophie. She's standing in the doorway and staring at my box full of treasures. (laughs) Staring at my box. I pull out a couple of garments and hold them up in front of me. What do you think? I ask, grinning. She looks around at everything I've pulled out and shakes her head. I think it must have cost a fortune. Gods, Hallie, can you afford this? Apparently so. I hand her the packing slip and then start trying to pick out some underwear. I decide on some lacy white bottoms with a high cut that shows off my legs. 
I don't really need a bra, so I put on a swirly patterned orange and yellow blouse made of that light, silky peekaboo material. Ha! Wait till they see that at the office. Hallie, how long have you known this guy? Sophie sounds uncharacteristically serious. Longer than you knew that guy you brought home last Friday. Maybe that's mean, but I say it playfully, letting her know I'm not ragging on her. She's quiet for a few seconds, and I start looking around in the box for some bottoms to go with the blouse. Okay, granted, she says at last, but he didn't buy me a thousand marks worth of clothes either. Gods, how does he even know your size? I shrug. He asked. I told him. Good thing, too, or I wouldn't have had any pants to wear yesterday. I briefly entertain the image of showing up at the lab in my skivvies. <laughs> no, that would just be impractical. I pick out a pair of shorts and pull them on, then model them in front of the mirror. It's a good look. Hal, this guy knows way too much about you. Poor Sophie, she sounds so distraught. Listen to me. I study this stuff for a living, remember? He's showing all the signs of an unhealthy sexual fixation. Watching you, figuring out your schedule, showing up in odd places, buying you expensive and erotic gifts when you've just met. He hasn't even told you his name. Sure he has, I say, trying to decide on a pair of sandals. It's a riddle. I haven't worked it out yet, but his name's in there. You're not listening, damn it. Gods, Sophie's really upset now. I look over at her and see that her face is flushed again, this time with anger. She's gripping that packing slip in her hand like she wants to choke the life out of something. I put down the sandals and sit down on the edge of the bed, looking at her closely. You're really worried about me, I say quietly. Of course I'm worried, she says, shaking the fist, holding the packing slip. I love... You're my friend, she adds, suddenly getting quieter. My best friend. The one who kept me from getting too stupid or too crazy. Now you're acting all weird and running around naked and laughing like you're drunk and you're getting boxes of skimpy clothes from this guy you just met and... Hey, I say, putting a hand on her shoulder. Take it easy. Come on, sit down. She sits down next to me, and I put my arm around her. She's actually trembling a little. Great maker, I never knew she cared so much. Listen, I hear what you're saying. I really do. But this isn't just some freak trying to get into my pants. Septimus knows things. Things that I don't understand how he could know. He can just intuit things that would take me days or weeks to figure out. He's offered to help me figure out the flaws in my research, and I can tell he's brilliant enough to do it. I need his help. Serial killers are almost always men of very high intelligence, Sophie says, her voice subdued. Be that as it may, I don't think he's a serial killer. I think he's a mathematical genius, with a little bit of magical talent, who's looking for someone who's willing to listen to what he has to say. Magical talent? She sounds almost too afraid to ask. He did something yesterday before he left. Put his hands over my eyes, and there was this... this surge of energy. It amplified all of my senses. 
like I had cotton balls stuffed in my ears and nose and mouth and plastic wrap over all of my skin, and I finally got rid of it. That sounds like a drug, Hallie. It wasn't. It faded after a while, turned into this thing that sort of settled in the back of my mind. But when I reached for it again last night, it all came back to me. It's still with me. I'm not high on drugs, Sophie. I'm high on oxygen, on life. I feel like I've been asleep my whole life and I finally woke up. I shake my head. There isn't any drug that could do that. That doesn't sound like a simple spell either, Sophie says, not sounding very reassured. It would take a lot of power to permanently boost all your senses like that. I'm not sure if he did boost them, I say, slowly. I think maybe... Maybe this is something that was always inside of me, only I didn't know it. Like a muscle I didn't know how to use, until he woke it up. We're both quiet for a while, mulling that over. Look, if you don't trust him around me, come with me today and play chaperone. See what he's like for yourself. I pull her closer to me, in sort of a sideways hug. I'd enjoy having the company. She hesitates for a moment. All right, but if I see anything that looks like danger, I'm pulling you out of there. If I say go, we go. Fair? I take one of her hands in my free hand and squeeze it. Fair. Now let's get ready to go. I still need to call and let him know we're coming. Septimus is waiting for us when we arrive. He's wearing a tightly fitted green t-shirt that shows off his abs. He's got really nice abs, and nice biceps, and nice everything else. It's not overdone. He doesn't look like a bodybuilder, just a guy who takes really good care of himself. And somehow he still manages to look as suave and poised as he did in the suit. Sophie tries not to look impressed, but I can see her eyeing him as I make the introductions. Septimus, this is my roommate, Sophie Gallagher, I say. Ah, Miss Gallagher, Septimus says, bowing deeply. He takes her hand and kisses it, an absurdly old-fashioned gesture that he pulls off amazingly well. A pleasure to meet you, my dear. Have you come to learn as well? I've come to watch, she says politely. I don't know how much I'll actually learn from it. Math makes my ears bleed. Septimus laughs at that. Is that so? Very well. I shall endeavor to keep our work today as untechnical as possible. He turns to me. Hallie, dear, have you been using what I gave you? Apart from the clothes, I mean. And you do look ravishing in them, I must say. I blush and smile at the compliment. Yes, I have. It was a little overwhelming at first, but I'm starting to get used to it. Excellent, he says, clapping his hands once. You must be comfortable with the heightened awareness of your present surroundings before you can take the next step. Which is what, exactly? Sophie asks. Septimus pulls a handkerchief out of his pocket, dangles it over his open palm, shakes it twice, then pulls it aside to reveal a little plant, twelve or fourteen centimeters tall, sitting in a tiny pot full of soil. I clap for him, but Sophie just raises her eyebrows. That's your mystery of the universe? Stage magic? What? 
Oh, no, no, Miss Gallagher, he says, chuckling. This is just the raw material. We're going to look at real magic today. He looks up at me questioningly. Assuming, that is, that you have access to a thaumatometer. Of course, it's in the lab. Come on, Sophie. I lead the way to our laboratory, unlock it, and let us all inside. We keep the technical equipment in here, for those occasions when we stop theorizing and modeling long enough to actually measure something. Septimus spots the big black machine along the far wall, hits the switch to power it up, then puts the plant inside the test chamber. What is this thing? Sophie asks, as Septimus adjusts the settings and waits for the machine to finish warming up. A thaumatometer, I tell her. A device for detecting mana and looking at magical fields. She frowns. Haven't wizards been doing that for centuries without a machine? Yes, but I'm not a wizard, and neither is Pietro. Besides, a thaumatometer lets you make recordings, or magnify the image, or do other things that a wizard can't do. Makes it easier to tell what you're looking at. Precisely, says Septimus, stepping back from the machine and nodding. A wondrous invention, and perfect for our purposes today. Now then, take a look at the view screen here. He gestures at the display, where a swirling pattern of colored lights surrounds a white outline of the plant against a field of black. You can see the different colors, yes, Miss Gallagher? Those are the different aspects of mana that are present. She nods. I figured. I assume green means life? Right, I say. And blue is water, yellow is air, orange is earth, red is fire, and purple is death. And black, Septimus concludes, is the void, where mana has left the world and nothing has yet filled its place. You will see that the chamber is magically insulated from the outside, allowing us to see more clearly what happens within the chamber. All right, she says, nodding. I'm with you so far. What's the plant for? He reaches into a pocket and pulls out a book of matches. A demonstration, to determine if Hallie is ready to see what I will show her. With a series of keystrokes at the control pad, he magnifies the display, focusing in on a single leaf on one of the uppermost branches of the little plant. The swirling colors become clearer and better defined, forming visible currents and eddies whose movements can be tracked. Life-aspected mana runs through the leaf wherever photosynthesis is happening, then follows the newly made sugars into the veins and down the stalk of the plant to the roots. At the same time, water-aspected mana travels up the stalk, along with the water from the damp soil, finally passing out of the tiny openings on the bottom of the leaf and scattering into the air as the water evaporates. Air-aspected mana floats around the chamber in lazy circles, as diffuse and scattered as the air molecules themselves. "'I'm going to set fire to the tip of this leaf,' Septimus says. "'I want you to watch closely, Hallie.' and tell me what happens as the leaf burns. I frown, puzzled. I can tell you right now what's going to happen. I'm sure you can, but humor me. Shrugging, I go over to the display and fiddle with the focus a bit. Okay, ready. Septimus strikes the match, then uses a pair of cold iron pincers to lower it into the chamber. Instantly the display begins to show red, while the blue currents drain out of sight. Faint yellow wisps swirl around a bright spot of red, like a school of fish reacting to a shark passing among them. 
As the fire touches the leaf, a jagged purple line begins to advance across its surface, erasing the green as it passes and leaving red in its wake. The burned leaf turns to ash, and the red gives way to orange as raw carbon soot falls to the floor of the chamber. Septimus puts out the fire and turns to me. What did you see? I shrug. The fire generated death mana when it touched the leaf. The life mana burned away, leaving fire and earth, heat and ashes. Ah, he says, raising a finger. But where did the life mana go when the fire touched it? Back into the ether, presumably. Some of it was pulled back into the plant in response to the trauma, but most of it went back where it came from. And where did the death mana come from? There was little or no death mana present until the fire touched the living plant. Same place. It was pulled out of the ether in response to the death of the plant cells. He nods as if he expected that answer, and paces back and forth a few steps. Then he abruptly changes course and walks back over to me, looking me right in the eyes from a decimeter away. What you have just described is what you infer must have happened given your assumptions of how mana behaves. You are looking at the behavior of the thaumatogenic fields as a whole and mapping them against your preconceived notions. You are not looking at the thaumatons themselves. I back away a step, hesitant. What is he talking about? You can't see thaumatons, I say, carefully. At best, we can see the traces they leave behind, but for that you'd need a billion mark accelerator. He reaches out and puts his hands to either side of my face again, like blinders. He holds them there for a long moment, looking me in the eye to see if I get his meaning. I do. You can see more than that, he says, sotto voce. But you must choose to do it. Put away your assumptions and see. He pulls back his hands and backs away. Sophie looks back and forth between us, but says nothing. I take a deep breath and let it out. All right, I say. Rewinding the recording, I adjust it for maximum magnification and play it back at one-tenth speed. As the line of purple death mana begins to crawl onto the display, I open up all my senses and look as hard as I can at a single point on the screen where the fire is passing over. In that instant, my perception changes. Death. Air. Fire. Void. Life. Air. Fire. Death. Air. Life. Water. Air. Death. Air. Water. Life. Void. Earth. Life. Death. The barrage of impressions hits me suddenly, all at once, a flood of information that my mind scarcely knows how to process. I reel backwards and feel Sophie's arms behind me, catching me and keeping me from falling. Hallie! She cries, panic edging her voice. Oh, gods, Hallie! I'm all right, I say quickly, putting a hand down on a table to steady myself. I'm okay. What did you do to her? Nothing at all, says Septimus, unconcerned. She has merely seen something, haven't you, Hallie? I nod. It was just a flash there for a second, but I saw the thaumatons, a whole cloud of them. They were doing something, interacting with each other. I frown. And there was something going on in the middle of it, some kind of pattern. I shake my head. 
like several kinds of thaumatons were in the exact same place at the same moment. Which is impossible, I think. I couldn't make sense of it. Yes, Septimus says slowly. Yes, that is indeed the point of interest. Rewind it again. Look carefully at that point, at the heart of the reaction. Hallie, Sophie says, squeezing my hand. You don't have to do this if you don't want to. I take another breath and straighten. Yes, I do have to. Because I want to know. I want to see what happens. I walk back over to the machine and rewind the recording again. As I focus, my vision opens up again, and I see the individual thaumatons in their different aspects. I focus on the one in the center, a life thaumaton sitting where the line of fire is about to sweep over it, and I watch carefully. The life thaumaton changes, changes. into fire and grows away from life falls into chaos. chaos. Or avoids it by, by withdrawing returning to the, the plant. Ether. I close my eyes and take a deep breath, thinking back over what I just saw. It changed, I say, wonderingly. The thaumaton changed. So what? Sophie asks from somewhere behind me. Is that unusual? Unusual? It's impossible. Or at least it's supposed to be. It's like a quark changing from an up to a bottom. It doesn't happen. I shake my head again. Except that it does. I saw it become air or earth or fire or... Something clicks into place. A realization of what I had been looking at. No. Not or. And. One particle. Six different paths. And it took all of them. I look over at Septimus. He nods, open approval in his expression. Yes, Hallie. It took all of them. Every possibility. Every path. How? How do you think? I look over at the display and move it back to just after the moment of transition. Where the life thaumaton was, and then where everything was, an instant later... Only a single death thaumaton remained in its place. Every path taken, but we only see one result. It's not just a transition state, is it? Where the thaumaton hovers between forms for an instant? It is that, but it is not just that. Septimus agrees. All paths are taken. I think on it, puzzling over the possibilities. An idea creeps in from the back of my mind one that was put forth by some radical particle physicists a few years ago. What was it they had said? Time is not an arrow, but an ever-spreading branch. Huh? Sophie says. Time. We know it's linear. You do A, it leads to B, and then to C. Cause and effect, input and output. But when the same input can cause multiple outputs, if B can lead to either C or D and the outcome is truly random, then reality splits the difference. Both of them happen, but in different timelines. I never believed it, because I didn't believe there was such a thing as true randomness. But now... Now you see the truth, Septimus says. There is another axis running perpendicular to time. The axis of probability. 
choices are made, chances occur, and time splits to encompass all possibilities. He leans down in front of me and spreads his hand in front of my face. You have learned how to see the paths not taken, the choices that led to other timelines. If you so desire, you can even see the paths that are yet to be taken and choose the ones you wish to follow. My legs feel weak. Slowly, I sit back on the edge of the table, feeling the implications of it all. Is this real? I ask, softly. Or am I going crazy? Septimus chuckles. Quite possibly both. It is real. Whether it conforms to the consensus reality of others is another matter entirely. I can't decide how I feel about that. Not yet, anyway. My mind grabs hold of another thought. If this is true, then there must be billions of new timelines branching off every second, driven by random reactions like the one I just saw. It's complete chaos. How can the ordered universe that we see come out of that? Septimus shrugs. Perhaps it is like a crystal forming an assault solution. Chaos collapses into order because it is more stable, less energetic. Perhaps many of those timelines merge again with their neighbors, so that only the significant changes last. He smirks. Or perhaps we perceive a world of order, because it is only in those timelines where order does persist that we can still survive to wonder about it. Whoa, Sophie says under her breath. I look over at her and quietly echo the feeling. Then I turn back and look up at Septimus. He's standing there with his hands clasped behind his back, looking mildly satisfied, like a professor who's just finished his lecture. This is really going to screw with my model, I say. His face splits into a grin. My work here is done, he says. And that's the end of part four. Come back next week for the conclusion to Halley's journey. Robert Black said, Writers should cut as close to the vein as possible. The readers don't want to be covered in your warm, sticky blood, but they want to come as close to it as possible. So, let's see what's on the operating table this week. Here's your weekly writing report. In the three weeks since our last episode, I've written 20,460 words over the course of 23.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 871 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 53 days without breaking my chain. I spent most of my time over this break working on The Lost and the Least. I was hoping to finish it by the end of the year, and while I didn't quite manage that, it's now very close. I'm confident I can wrap up the first draft by the end of January, as long as I don't have any debilitating illnesses or life-threatening injuries or something. Inshallah. I also wrote a blog post, which is the first one I've done in a while. It's a look at 2016 in review, the things I accomplished this past year, some of my best memories, and my plans and hopes for 2017. You can find it at chrislester.org. 
If you're subscribed to my mailing list, you also got an end-of-the-year newsletter, and a link to the post can be found there. Finally, during the break, I finished up my new Metamore City Christmas story, A Wizard Family Solstice. I then did a live reading of the story on Facebook on December 23rd, 24th, and 25th. You can still find the story on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group, and I've also uploaded the video to my YouTube channel. Stay tuned for a more professionally recorded version later this month. Looking back at the month of December, I wrote a total of 31,170 words. I wrote on all 31 days, averaging 1,005 words per day. This was my second most productive month ever. Only November 2015 had a higher word count. Compared to the previous month, my word count increased by 44%, and my writing time increased by 23%. On the Patreon campaign, we've recently added several new patrons. Say hello to Frank, Johan, Daniel, Ryan, Ninja Trollet, and Christopher. In December, the Patreon campaign reached 100 patrons for the first time ever. Huge thanks to all of you for your continued support. And what do you get if you join the Patreon campaign? Well, every week I bring you a special podcast with behind-the-scenes commentary on the episodes. In addition, every month you get a new piece of bonus artwork from Metamore City artist Ben Clifford. His latest piece shows Malcolm's vision from Things Unseen, and it is very cool. You can also get sneak previews of upcoming work, and the opportunity to participate in contests, like my Divine Intervention book giveaway. Head on over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester to check out the pledge levels and make a pledge today. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on iTunes. It really makes a difference in helping new people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester. Signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2006 and 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvin Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.